Welcome to Pullback, the podcast where we usually challenge ourselves to try something new in ethical consumption. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And this is another bonus episode. This time we're releasing it just, I guess, 13 days now, um, as we're recording after the killing of George Floyd. And as I'm sure every listener knows, the sort of the rise in protest that has um, has come out across America and the world to highlight problems with police brutality. Kyla and I wanted to do an episode to acknowledge this, and trying to think of a concept was really difficult because Kyla and I are both white. We, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say that. Um, we try to be allies to the best extent that we can be, but we know that... Uh, will never be able to understand oppression the same way that racialized people do. And in for, for this issue in particular, Black Canadians, Black Americans. At the same time, we didn't want to bring in, we didn't want to bring in one of our, our Black colleagues or acquaintances or friends, because we know this is a time where Black people are really grieving and putting a lot of their energy into activism, and we don't want to be the people that are burdening them. So it was it was kind of challenging to think of what to do. And the best idea that we came up with uh, in the time that we had was to just highlight some things that we learned over the week. And hopefully those things will be useful to listeners. And at the very least, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on what we've experienced and how our learning journey as allies has sort of come forward over the week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is so well said. I have felt like at a loss for words for the last two weeks now almost. I don't want to speak up because it's not my turn to speak. But on the other hand, we have a platform. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is just really tricky, and I appreciate the way that you phrased everything there. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly encapsulates how I am also feeling. And if any listeners do want to reach out to us with their experiences, um, like if you're a Black listener and you are like, well, they didn't ask me, uh, please, please reach out to us. We just didn't want to put more, as Kristen said, of a burden on our friends and colleagues and acquaintances that are already going through a lot right now. So, so <laughs> <go ahead. laughs> uh, do you want to start with the, the first thing that you've learned this week or shall I? Oh, why don't you start? Okay, cool. <laughs> so my first point is actually a little bit long. Um, I have point number one and then I have nine points underneath it. Um, nice. So point number one is looting. Things I've learned about looting because I didn't really understand it. I didn't have a super strong opinion on it one way or another. I wasn't anybody, I wasn't, you know, on Twitter saying one thing about it or another, but I, I've seen a lot of people sharing a lot of information about it. And what I've been able to tell, and I'm going to share all of the sources that I'm going to be talking about. Um, so if I don't quote a source, please, uh, but you're but you're wondering like where I got my information from, go to our show notes. It's on our website, pullback.org, and you'll be able to find links to all of the stuff that we're talking about. And if I am wrong about anything and you have the energy to correct me, I welcome it, honestly. Um, 
But if you don't have the energy to correct me, you know, that's okay too. Um, everyone's exhausted right now. <laughs> so, but yeah, please, if you if you want to reach out to us, um, we are on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. So here we go. Point number one, um, most of the looting, at least in New York, appears not to have been done by protesters, but by opportunists not associated with the protests. I think that's true in a lot of cases. Um, number two, we're living through a time when people can't get their basic needs met during a pandemic mm. where many have lost their jobs and the healthcare attached to those jobs, especially in the United States. People are yeah, angry. I think, uh Sorry, I think the stat that I saw was that one in seven American children are food insecure right now. Cool. <laughs> Sorry, just to add that <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah, so that, yeah, people are angry and desperate and the police are instigating violence during peaceful protests that are protesting police violence. Like, <laughs> no wonder, like, even if, even if it is, people associated with the movement who are looting. Emotions are high right now. So number three, the media focuses on looting, saying it takes away from the cause when they, as the media, are the ones who choose to focus on it instead of focusing on the cause. Uh, the vast majority of protesters are there for the cause and not looting. It's pretty hypocritical, considering how Canada and the USA were founded on property theft from the people who already lived here. That's point number four. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> to be clear, when I say nice, I mean nice on you for calling it out, not nice on colonialism. Us for doing it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think, I think we get where you're coming from. You're okay. <laughs> Number five, after years of peaceful protests being ignored, maybe some property damage will get stuff done. Uh, number six, people's lives are more important than property. Number seven, large companies are guilty of wage theft, nearly $15 billion a year in the U.S. Even if these companies didn't have insurance, they can stand to lose a few items off the sales floor. Number eight, most places have insurance, even small businesses. And number nine, people's lives matter more than property. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just want to read a quote from an article from The Atlantic, uh, just to finish off this first point. For one thing, looters and peaceful protesters aren't typically the same people. Dana Fisher, a sociologist at the University of Maryland, has studied protests for 20 years, and she says it's rare for peaceful protesters to start stealing and setting fires at random. People flock to the sites of protests with different motivations, and those who want peace tend to stay peaceful. I've never seen somebody come in who's peaceful and then it's like, hey, they just broke that window over there. I'm going to now start looting, she told me. Those in the looting group also have varied motivations. In their 1968 study, Dines and Corintelli, and I apologize for my pronunciation if either of those people are listening, <laughs> note that vandalism during protests focuses on objects and buildings that are symbolic of other values. For example, people are more likely to attack symbols of authority, such as the CNN buildings or police cars, than apartment buildings. In this way, some of the looting is a lashing out against capitalism, the police, and other forces that are seen as perpetuating racism. Widespread looting, then, may perhaps be interpreted as a kind of mass protest against our dominant conceptions of property. Uh, these, uh, yeah, Dines and Quarantelli wrote, it is a bid for the redistribution of property. So basically, if we addressed the systemic issues that people are protesting, 
there wouldn't be looting. I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. And also when it comes to uh, the destruction of symbolic property, look, I'm, I'm not going to advocate for crime on this podcast, but I'm just going to say when I saw the market hall, which is a building where slaves were sold, burning, I was not sad about it. And I don't think a lot of people were. So... <laughs> Yeah. And yeah. again, I'm not advocating for <laughs> violence uh, or crime either. I just learned a lot more about it. It, it. it seems like a black and white issue. And then you read more into it and you find that it's actually a little bit more nuanced, just like everything. Yeah. So what's your first point? Yeah. So the first thing that I learned this week was that Americans have donated an unprecedented amount of money to bail funds around the country. And uh, that most notably includes $30 million that was raised for the Minnesota Freedom Fund. Uh, which just as a side note, if you're thinking of giving to the Minnesota Freedom Fund, uh, they've said they have enough money and they want you to donate to other black serving organizations. So don't just instinctively look to that one because the protest started in Minneapolis. You, you know, try to find one in your community. Yeah, it's really easy just to Google. I did I did that. To, I wanted to find local uh, Canadian charities to donate to. So, I mean, a Google search will take you a long way. Yeah. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about bail funds and why they're important because I did a yeah. little bit of reading on it. Yeah. So community bail funds are really important essentially because they free people that are being imprisoned without having been convicted of a crime. And this is actually something that affects a lot of Americans. So 470,000 Americans are in local jails that have not been convicted of a crime. They're essentially only in jail because they can't afford the bail bond that has been set for them. So these are people that should be presumed innocent until proven guilty, but their freedom's been taken away because they don't have the money to free themselves with a bail bond. I, I, another stat that I think is important to note in this is that over half of the people in jail because they couldn't make bail are actually parents of children under 18. So this is a child care issue too. Uh, you know, bail can cost thousands of dollars and sometimes more. And it has been viewed by many as discriminatory and unjust. And, and also it's racist there's a study that found bail rates are twice as high for racialized Americans as they are for white Americans. Another thing that's sort of more connected to bail in the context that we've had this week is that bail can be used in a really undemocratic way. So the threat of arrest and pretrial imprisonment are deterrents to political protest, and they're used as such by police officers. Police sometimes use arrest as a tactic for suppressing protest. They'll arrest protesters in the hope that that will deter other people from going out and demonstrating. And even if people do come out on bail, oftentimes there can be bail conditions attached that prevent them from organizing with other members of a movement. So even though you might be going out to a protest and completely acting within your rights, you can have your ability to organize further protests or to be in a room with a community you might feel really connected to, taken away. And that is incredibly undemocratic. And it's also something that police do consciously to try to um, institute order. Not in all cases, but in some cases they do use that tactic. So bail funds are a really nice tool because they can help to support democratic dissent by providing a financial safety net for pretrial detention. 
And then if you're also coupling that with legal defense funds, you can help the people that have been arrested um, to avoid charges and things like that, or to drop those bail conditions that might limit their ability to further express democratic dissent, which I think we should like in a democratic society. A quick note that at least uh, 9,300 protesters have been arrested in the American protests so far. Uh, protests are legal, right? Or like... <laughs> um, oh God, we could do a whole episode on that. Uh, it's a complicated question. You do have you do have rights. And so some protests are legal. There are, all, there are some things you can do during protests that may not be legal. Complicated topic. <laughs> Lots of <laughs> lawyers have written and recorded things on this. So I'd recommend that people go to that. So Black Lives Matter in particular has recognized the importance of bail funds. This was something that was a big learning coming out of the 2014 protests following the death of Michael Brown and Ferguson. But even though that was sort of a learning from 2014, that's not to say that bail is by any means a new tactic. Bail funds have existed for hundreds of years. And actually, the idea of Black Americans pooling money to free family members and family is uh, and friends is something that goes back to the slavery era. So there are really deep roots of that sort of mutual aid um, within the civil rights movement, basically. What a shitty, heartwarming thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, both of those things. So donating to bail funds is a good way that you can support protesters who are arrested in the course of exercising their rights. And the use of bail and legal defense funds can also combat punitive measures that police try to imp- impose to uh, alleviate the pressure to to plead guilty, right? Because taking away people's freedom by putting up a bail bond that they can't possibly afford is one way that people are pressured into pleading guilty. And actually, there's a, there's a good Netflix documentary that covers this topic within a broader discussion of the criminal justice system and racism in America. I think it's called 13. Or the 13th? Yeah, the 13th. There we go. Yeah, a really good documentary. I'd recommend you watch it. And yeah, that was all I had to say about bail bonds. <laughs> Donate to them. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll go, I'll move on to my second point then. So the second thing I learned about, uh, which probably I used to know about, but it just, you know, you learn something and then it flies out of your head until it mm-hmm. comes back and you're like, what, what? It happens to me constantly. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned about uh, the counterintelligence program, uh, Credit to a Twitter thread from Claire Willett that was circulating on Facebook and Twitter. I will link to that. But basically, it was started by J. Edgar Hoover um, when he was head of the FBI. It was an illegal spying operation run by the FBI meant to discredit progressive activist movements, mostly the black civil rights leaders. And it worked so well that even after proof came out that they had been blatantly lying about a lot of the allegations against these civil rights movements, especially the Black Panthers, people still believe that stuff today. Yeah. So I'm going to share that. I really recommend everybody go and read that Twitter thread and maybe read a little bit more about the counterintelligence program because it is fucked up. So that's the second thing I learned about. Yeah, there's also... um 
Behind the Bastards had a really good Black Panthers episode. They did. Yeah. Yes, they did a great job on that. Yeah. Um, if you guys all want to go listen to that Behind the Bastards episode on the Black Panthers, it's enlightening. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the second thing that I learned this week is that most Canadian police forces do not wear body cameras, and it's a problem. (laughs) So one of the police forces that is starting to implement body cameras is Calgary, which I would not have necessarily pegged as the most likely police force to do that. But good for them. Uh Good for them, yeah. Good, Good job, Calgary. Um, Although it did happen after there is a conviction of an officer who assaulted an Indigenous man, so, you know. Oh, never mind, I take it back. Yeah. Uh, But, like, good on them for implementing things, because I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Toronto police and the RCMP, and both of them have had multiple pushes, and they have not done things. So, uh, Calgary at least did something. So, actually, the Toronto police ran a pilot project using body cameras in 2016, which is kind of nice. And... Basically, the outcome of that pilot project was that the body cameras were recommended because they were seen as a a good and useful thing. But the department basically decided that they weren't going to weren't going to do that. That has become an issue of discussion recently because of the death of Regis Kurczynski Paquette in Toronto. It's renewed some calls for the use of body cameras. And it's basically because so Regis Kurczynski Paquette's Death is still under investigation, but essentially uh, Regis's mother alleges that police officers threw her off of a balcony. The police department denies that, but unfortunately, because no one was wearing body cameras, I believe, um, they, they don't really, the truth may never actually come out. The investigation is kind of limited to who was in the room, which in this case, it was police officers in a room and a woman that's dead. So going to be really difficult to get any kind of impartial evidence. Although hopefully the investigations unit does its best. So that experience or that situation has led to further pushes for body cameras, which has been sort of like a longstanding thing with Toronto. Uh, But I should note that it echoes several other killings in the greater Toronto area by police. So in 2015, Andrew Loku was shot dead within five minutes of police arriving in his apartment. Uh, DeAndre Campbell, this year in April, was fatally shot by the Peel police in Brampton. And there are two uniting factors in all three of these situations. One of them is that all three of the people who were shot or um, otherwise killed are black. And the second thing is that they were all in a mental health crisis. So at the very least, this is a massive failure of de-escalation and uh, it it pushes towards the fact that that is something that the police need to get better at, or perhaps they're not the right people to be de-escalating mental health crises. Uh, see the Chantal Moore situation, a indigenous woman who was killed when police were doing a wellness check on her because a neighbor was sort of worried about her well-being. <sighs> anyway, uh, but it, it has, these situations have renewed calls for the Toronto police to have uh, body cameras instituted. And and this also 
goes into a, a broader pattern, right? Black people in Toronto are 20 times more likely to be shot by police. And in case you're questioning that number, that is according to an Ontario Human Rights Commission report. So it's the government saying that, <laughs> you know. <sighs> yeah, so the, the good news with this is that there's a petition calling for Toronto police officers to be equipped with body cameras. And right now it has more than 100,000 signatures. We will link to that in the research notes. You should sign it. The RCMP is not any better on this. They piloted body cameras twice in 2010 and in 2013. Then after they finished piloting it twice, they did a feasibility study, which was released in 2015. The 2015 feasibility study said, yeah, use body cameras. <laughs> and <laughs> the RCMP said, but there's nothing technologically available that would meet our requirements, except the report itself had noted that there was actually an available product made by a company called Axon that met all of their requirements. So what you doing, RCMP? So the, the feasibility report basically said, yeah, you should use these body cameras because it improves accountability and transparency. Um, but the RCMP has not done so. There are renewed calls for them to do that because on May 5th, 2020, a 31-year-old man in Clyde River, Nunavut, was killed in an altercation with an RCMP officer. The, this is not the only incident where there's been a shooting in Nunavut, which is not a large population, and I only looked at this one territory, but there are currently three police shootings in 2020 in Nunavut, which I think has like 100,000 people in total. Yeah, it's like one of the least populated, if not the least populated place in Canada. Yeah, you know what, I'm gonna just Google because I think that might actually be smaller. Yeah, it, it has a population of 39,000, give or take. So in a population that small, there have been three police shootings in 2020 that are under investigation committed by the RCMP. This is not an America-specific problem. It's a problem in Canada, too. All right, that was the second thing I learned, that Canadian cities don't use body cameras. I don't know why. Cool. Do it, guys. We'll sign that petition. Um, okay, so the third thing I learned, cops are worse than I thought, and <laughs> I have a lot of privilege thinking that I, like, I feel like I can trust the police, and that is something that I have never questioned about myself. And I knew, I knew that that wasn't true for other people, people of color, black people, but I'm only realizing the extent of it now, basically. Um, the United States uh, police forces are not the United States military. They should not be getting military gear. No, nope. I'm going to link to um, Hassan Minaj did an episode and so did John Oliver on both of them have talked about the militarization of police. I will link to both of those. They're great videos. Yeah. The other thing about cops uh, that I am starting to really, I'm just a lot of, I've lost a lot of respect is um, pretending to be with the protesters for the optics, like taking a knee mm -hmm. or marching with them. And then as soon as the photos have been taken, they'll lash out at the protesters. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I've learned um, in that category, um, in my <laughs> my respect for cops going way down, is um, it's basically impossible to prosecute or fire a police officer um, because of a lot of really crazy bureaucratic nonsense. And I will link to a video about that as well that everybody should watch. It's honestly um, very eye-opening. Mm. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I love unions, but police unions seem to have a particular problem where they're protecting bad cops. You want to do the third thing I've learned? Yeah, what have you What have you learned? You, yours Yours are more pop, uh, uh, positive than mine, sort of, so far? Well, I don't know. The second one wasn't very positive, but the That's third true. one is. <laughs> okay, yay! So, the third thing I learned is that there's a thing called public a public health approach to crime prevention, and it is pretty cool. So... A public health approach basically treats crime and violence as a contagious disease rather than an individual moral failing. And because it's an illness, the idea is that violence can be prevented and treated in the same way that we can flatten the curve on COVID. We can flatten the curve on violence in communities. So basically, a public health approach seeks to prevent violence by proactively addressing the social factors that make it more likely to spread rather than reactively punishing the perpetrators, which to me just makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, and it also recognizes that violence reflects a lot of complicated inequalities that we have in society. And so you have to you have to kind of address those inequalities in order to uh limit the contagion of violence in a society. So I found I found a good a good quote that for me really sums up a public health approach. So the idea is quote if dangerous behavior is like a contagious disease perhaps positive relationships can serve as an antidote. It's basically like caring in order to prevent violence. So this approach basically uses the same principles that public health uses to carry out interventions that would prevent violence through addressing contextual factors that influence it. So like, for example, people who experience violence often perpetrate it themselves. So trying to cut that cycle of violence is one approach that's taken. The other thing is that it tends to be service-based rather than punitive. So you might address things like homelessness, addiction, trauma, and unemployment by seeing those as the things that lead to crime and violence. And if you, if you end homelessness, maybe you end certain kinds of like property theft, right? Um, that's, that's kind of the, the thought is that you can draw connections between what drives people to, to commit crimes based on their, their context and their situations and the challenges that they face. And if you can address those challenges, maybe you can address crime. Scotland actually has really effectively used this approach. Uh, they used a public health approach to reduce the murder rate in Glasgow by 60%. 60, like 60. Uh, it is, in fact, the only country that has a public health model that's embedded across its police force. And all evidence that I found seems to suggest that it is a super good idea. It is difficult, though, because to deploy a public health approach, you have to actually really understand the community and what's driving violence. And, and the causes aren't going to be the same everywhere. But one solution that I like that has been used in a few places, including Philadelphia, is converting empty lots into green spaces. So basically turning, like if you have a demolished house that ends up being uh, an empty lot, turning that into a park that the public can use. Studies have found 
that the project in Philadelphia both reduced crime and made residents nearby feel safer. So yeah, sharing is caring. <laughs> That's be cool. nice. Yeah. Is that is that your your point number three? Yeah. Cool, because my point number four is the same. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, that's perfect. <laughs> I, I love that we both learned that. So yeah, my point number four, I literally just wrote, defunding the police means reinvesting in social pro- programs, uh, which ultimately can lead to better management of, well, mental health crises and everything that you just said. Like, you know, if people aren't starving or homeless, then they're going to have a better time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just like, that's just, I think my, my general philosophy about life is if people have a nicer time, like everybody kind of doesn't want to be a jerk, you know, but people have all kinds of challenges and circumstances that either make them see that society is not worth trusting and is bad, or they have needs that are unmet, or they have like, mental health issues that are unaddressed. And to me, that's like, it's the most obvious thing in the world is you just help those people out and society gets better. Yeah. So yeah, that was my that was my point number four. Um, what What's your point number four? Uh, it's sort of similar. Uh, my point number four is, I learned the extent to which municipal budgets are dominated by spending on police. I had no idea. So yeah, you had mentioned defunding the police in your last point, and I want to just say that for people who haven't encountered the argument, although it has been getting a lot of discussion this week, so probably people have, calls to defund the police generally aren't about abolishing the police completely. That is something that some people do promote, but in most cases, defunding the police actually is more about remedying an imbalance in how we allocate resources, in how we allocate resources. So it means spending more on education, mental health, housing, poverty reduction, transit, any number of other things. And that makes a lot of sense when you consider that for municipal operating budgets, police spending is often the single biggest spend, which maybe isn't a priority that we want to reflect in our society. So in Toronto, for instance, more than 20% of property tax revenue goes to police, it is our single largest expenditure. And that actually is small compared to some some other places in the United States. So I'll just... Apparently, Oakland has the highest per capita or the highest percentage of its budget that goes to the police, and that is 41% of their operating budget. Oakland, what is going on there? <laughs> I'm kidding. Chicago, not further behind with 40%. And then there's a whole bunch that are sort of in the 25 to 35 range. And New York City is actually only at 8%, but it has like overall the largest police budget. It's just a really big city. So yeah, it's police budgets are such a huge part of what people's property taxes are going to. And when you compare that against things like interventions for for homeless people or spending on public transit and all kinds of things like that, it just really, to me, seems messed up. And the other thing is that, so police budgets tend to increase every year and they're increasing at rates that are higher than other rates of spending. So in some cases you have 
more investment in police as you're having disinvestment in social spending. Uh, but even in other contexts where you're having spending rise overall, the rate of police increase is higher in a lot of the cases than the spending on other social programs and services. So for example, Vancouver's spending on police has increased 140% since 2001, which is messed up. If you're interested in more information on this, uh, Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud talked about this in a really accessible way in the June 4th episode of the Party Lines podcast, so I would recommend checking that out. I, I like that th three points in a row were basically about how if we invest in social programs, it helps. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So my last point then is not to end on a downer. Maybe I should have put this one <laughs> further up, actually. It's too late now. I've learned about a lot of awful, huge hate crimes that I had no idea about before. Mm. I'm not going to go into details. I'm going to share what I can. Um, I've, I'm mostly in America. A lot of my reading has been American-centric because that's what is blowing up right now. Um, but the Red Summer and the Tulsa Race Massacre, um, just to name two um, awful, awful um, racial hate crimes that that were committed, um, you know, not, not so long ago. Uh, I'll put links in the show notes, but basically, however bad I thought the history was, learning the details makes it so much worse. And it just, yeah, I don't know. It's just, no wonder everyone's so frustrated and exhausted. It's just stuff that's been going on for hundreds of years is still happening. Um, maybe not to the same degree, although I don't know. I, <laughs> the, the numbers of police killings are pretty high. So yeah, I've seen a lot of protest signs that say 1619 to 2020. So I don't know. For all the people that like incremental change out there, like how incremental are we talking? Because it's been hundreds of years. Yeah. So that is um, the last thing that I have learned in the last two weeks is just however bad I thought race crimes were in the past, especially in the United States, it's worse than I thought. Um, and that's that's me being super privileged. I never had to think about this stuff. Um, it's exhausting. And I just... I don't know. I, I, like we said at the top of this episode, maybe maybe we're doing the wrong thing by putting this out, but it feels it feels like doing nothing is maybe the worst thing we can do. I don't know. Yeah, actually, that leads really nicely into my fifth, <laughs> my fifth <laughs> learning, <laughs> which is it, it's okay to fuck up. That's uh, hopefully a more optimistic point to end on. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe start this point by... Uh, saying a quote by uh, Ijeoma Oluo, who is the author of So You Want to Talk About Race. And she says, the beauty of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself. Which I, I, it was a weirdly positive take on the really shitty reality that we live in an incredibly racist society. And so I don't know, as, as people that aren't black trying to be allies, you have to sort of combat that, that sense that there are some strings of racism that like, I'm always going to encounter 
in myself, things that I didn't know, assumptions I had that I hadn't sort of picked into, things like that. And being an ally is a process of, you know, taking that away from yourself and also fighting the systems of oppression that allow racism to continue and working towards an anti-racist society. There are lots of good resources on allyship out there. I am going to link to a bunch in the research note. Um, and actually, we sh I should also note that some Black authors have suggested that the term allyship is actually problematic because a, an ally brings to mind that the fight's someone else's and you're helping, but actually this is a fight that needs to be ours too. So definitely bearing that in mind, but allyship is the most common term, so I'm going to continue to use it for the remainder of this segment. But please yell at me on Twitter if you want to. I or let us know if there's a better <laughs> term. Yeah. Uh, so... A lot of the guides on allyship that I looked at point point out that on a learning journey to being an ally, allies are going to discover lots of things that are obvious to people experiencing that form of oppression, which in this case is racism. And inevitably, in the process of becoming an ally, you are just going to fuck up. You're going to fuck up a lot at first, and you'll fuck up less over time, but you will always fuck up a little bit because the only way to truly understand oppression is to live it. And as people that aren't racialized, we can't ever live that same experience. So this is something that I actually think is kind of a freeing notion. It means that you should always try to do your best, but you, you shouldn't be sort of like paralyzed by being afraid of doing the wrong thing, that that actually is worse. And if you approach the fight against racism with earnest intentions and humility. Yeah, you're going to fuck up sometimes, but you'll mostly be fine. Just apologize when you fuck up and don't take it personally. Yeah, and listen when people call you out, mm -hmm. which is maybe the hardest thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Um, even even on Twitter, I have found myself uh, reading tweets where people are saying, oh, don't do this thing. And it's something that I've I've done and I'm like, but I'm trying, you know, and I have to fight that instinct in myself um, to say, okay, it's like actually not about you, Kristen, you know, like just Yeah, listen. well, <laughs> the way I learned about the, the cops pretending to be with protesters is I posted like a nice uh, article about like, hey, look, these these cops are are standing with the protesters. And then I found out afterwards that actually it's all for show and I'm gullible fool. So, <laughs> you know, that was embarrassing. And I learned something from it um, that I should have known long ago, but that's my privilege. So. Yeah, totally. And I think the other thing that's sort of freeing about recognizing that you're always going to fuck up as an ally and all you can do is try to fix it when you do and try to fuck up as little as you can is that it means there's always more to learn. And so you never stop learning to be a good ally. There's not a point where you've read enough and you're done. You always have to continue in that learning process. Uh, but also importantly, on your learning journey, you have to teach yourself. Don't put this burden on your um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, friends, colleagues, and acquaintances. They have enough shit to deal with. Uh, Sometimes if you have a friend who's close enough, you can, you can ask questions, but you have to really know that 
what that relationship is. And you need to know for sure that that person that you're asking feels comfortable enough to say no to you because otherwise you're putting them in a tricky spot. And if they're your friend or just even a stranger, you know, don't play devil's advocate. It's exhausting. Yeah, just don't. Yeah. And I guess the last bit of this is like, just remember this actually isn't about you. So try asking yourself what Black, Indigenous, people of color are getting out of you as a potential ally and how you can be better for them. Anyway, that was that was sort of the way that I learned to think about it. That's us speaking directly to any allies listening in to this And episode. to ourselves. <laughs> and to ourselves. That was mostly directed at ourselves, mostly I feel like. Mostly to ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to share all of this stuff in our show notes. Um, You know, like we've already said, it's really easy to find sources to read. We'll share a lot of that stuff ourselves, too. If you guys want to reach out to us, we are on Twitter. Thanks for listening, guys. Stay safe.